comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Please listen carefully, for this is the word of God. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. We are in uh, part six of a 12-part series, and this is actually our third message on marriage. Um, And we have, two weeks ago, we talked about the definition of marriage, which is covenant covenantal union, and then we also talked about the issue of what is the central power and engine of marriage, which is to learn how to fight. (laughs) I told you that in your marriage, the person you're fighting with isn't primarily the other person. Actually, the person you got to fight is you. (laughs) The person you got to fight is you because the central problem in marriage is self-centeredness. And then last week we talked about the priorities of of marriage and how if you make marriage a priority even over your career or over your children and or money and all kinds of other things that tend to compete with it, um, that that is its rightful place. Now today we're going to enter into a subject which is really going to start to unpack the rest of the the, um, series. And today we're going to talk about one flesh. What does that mean? (laughs) The Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and then they, he will hold fast, or the, the old, the old uh, King James used to say he will cleave to his wife, which is weird because cleave today means to cut. <laughs> but cleave back then meant, meant to glue, to be, be put together. And so um, he shall be hold fast, he shall be glued to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And um, I, I, I once joked, it doesn't mean you become a big blob of meat, obviously, right? <laughs> Um, that we're talking about some deep union. You're, you don't lose your individuality. You're still you, but now you're united to someone else and you're becoming something more like one person. Um, that's how deep this union is. And that's what we're going to talk about 
Um, and we're going to start to unpack this throughout the rest of this series. And, and let me just give you a quick overview of some of the pieces. Now, we can't hit all the pieces, um, but what does one flesh mean? It means one. It means friendship. I'm going to talk about that today. Two, it means life-giving. If you are one flesh, the, the, the Bible uses the image of the, the husband is the head and the wife is the body, and then that means you're like one person. The, the picture is like you're one person. If you're, even though you're two, you're, you're like one person, and the head doesn't spew poison into the body. <laughs> the body doesn't, you know, the heart beats so that it can give life to the rest of the body and to the head. And so part of, of, uh, of one flesh is life-giving. So one is friendship. Two is life-giving. We're going to talk about that today. But other subjects that are coming up, um, it is about how we change and are washed. The Bible talks about how we are washed, um, how, the, how Christ washes his, his wife. And this is part of what we, how we are becoming more holy as, we, unto, as the way God intended us to be. Sanctification, that's going to be next week. Um, in later weeks, we're going to hit subject of when you become one with someone else, you don't just stay who you are. So um, the picture, uh, as, as, as I've been doing throughout much of this series, um, I like to draw from my favorite teacher uh, on marriage that I've learned from, which is uh, Pastor Timothy Keller of New York City. And one of the pictures that he gives is like marriage is like two, is like a, becoming a new compound. And you guys kind of know what this is like. There's, a, there's oxygen and it has certain attributes. And then there's hydrogen, and it has, different, it has certain attributes. But when it comes together, it forms this new third thing that we call water, and it's hydrogen and oxygen have come together, but now all the, the attributes are changing, and that's what we're also going to talk about in the future, how you change to become something new because of what the other person does to you, which I'm going to talk in a message. I'm going to talk about the power of the covenant voice. Um, other aspects of one flesh, there is the subject of sex. Yes, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> and then there is also the subject of how we cross into and are completed by someone who is very different from us. And here we're going to talk about into some thorny subjects of, of gender. How is the male and female different? I think our society right now has very profound confusions about how there is differences between male and female and when you are completed by the other. And then we're also, within that portion, we're going to talk about that thorny subject. Very not fun subject. And thankfully, Pastor Young decided to fall on his sword, and he's going to preach that one for me, which is the subject of submission and headship, okay? And so uh, you guys can get all mad at him about that one, all right? Um, so um, what a great friend he is. He actually, he actually volunteered to preach that one, all right? So um, those are some of the subjects that are coming up in, in the future, so we just uh, unpack this. And then there's going to be one more, so we still have, this is six, number six, there's six more where we're going to unpack all these. And you, as you can see, the, the, the 12th one is going to be the theological vision. What is the Bible's fundamental theological vision? This is one of the big things that's really missing in our culture, which used to be in our culture, is that Marriage isn't just two people. There's a man, a woman, they happen to like each other and say, you know, let's just, you know, let's make it work together for the rest of our life. But this is really from God, a glorious vision of a unity and of male, female, and of deep friendship from God for life. And so um, that's going to culminate our series. Um, but today, today let's talk about one flesh union, one flesh unity, in the subjects of friendship. So that's going to be part one of my message today. 
Um, Spirit-filled covenantal friendship. That's part one. I'm going to talk about what this is. What is what sh friendship? Spirit-filled covenantal friendship. Part two, we're going to talk about life-giving. And part three of my message is about the very best life-giving friend. And if those of you who, are, who normally hear me preach, you might have an idea who that is, okay? Um, let's talk about uh, part one, spirit-filled uh, covenantal friendship. Um, this isn't really well um, seen in our culture today, and I thought it was really worth um, emphasizing. Um, in our culture, today when we think about marriage, mostly people think about romantic love. You, know, you meet somebody, you fall in love with this person, let's be together for the rest of our life. But actually, um, I, I think this is such a great phrase, uh, Timothy Keller, the way he put it was that we tend to think that um, ro it's, uh, marriage is romance with a little side of friendship. <laughs> but actually, that's not true. In a real marriage, in a good marriage, it's actually really a deep friendship with a little helping and a side and garnished with romance. That's the way it really works. And this is the way the Bible intended it to be. But so, um, you know, I, 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 uh, for this portion of my message, I just really want to draw from him, Timothy Kell. This is his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And he has about, he has a portion here where he's talking about marriage as friendship. And I think he summarized it as well as anybody. And, um, and just to, to, to um, let me put this emphasis, if, you're, if your husband or your wife isn't your very best friend, huh, um, you're, you're missing something. <laughs> your husband or your wife was intended to be, from God, your very best friend, even more than the person you call your best friend. Um, and over time, this is a, a friendship so deep, so profound, that you become something of this thing that we call one flesh. And, um, and I think Keller, he, we don't normally hear it this way. I mean, I, I remember listening to this when Keller said this a number of years ago when I listened to his marriage service, and I said, my wife is my best friend. Who, who says that, right? But I think that's right. And um, so in this first portion, he summarizes in three pieces, right? So what does a friend look like? And some of you are thinking, like, I know what a friend, a friend is. I'm a, I've got friends, but do you? <laughs> I, I've, uh, I, I've noticed in our culture that we have a very shallow and, um, vision of friendship that I think a lot of people say they have friends, but when I listen to what they consider friends, I don't think they have friends. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think you have friends. You have acquaintances. And so I, I've said this before. If you go, you know, you go off to college and you live in a dorm and then there's a person on the floor and that's the person you like to hang out with on Friday night. Maybe you like to drink a little too much with that person. Or you move to another city and then there's a person in your work group and you're, you don't know anybody in the city. So, hey, you want to come out and come out to softball or go out to drinks after work is over. That's a person that's around, you're lonely, you like to hang out with because they're convenient. That's not a friend. Okay, that's not necessarily a friend, that's an acquaintance. And so um, I want to talk about what the, the, the just three important aspects of friendship, and then particularly in the third one, how it is spirit-filled. So the first one, the first one, what is a quality of a friend, and this is very important in marriage, and that is, Keller likes to say it is constancy. Constancy. What does that mean? That means a friend is there for you when you need them. And they'll be there for you for the long haul. 
And if there's ever a friendship like this, that's marriage. Now, um, usually, you, you know, you, you, you pick up friendship, and, uh, and like I said, if they don't, they're not there for you when you, re when they re when you really, really badly need them, I would really question whether how much of a friend they are. And you know what the ones that are real friends. Um, the one that when you badly need a ride to the airport and it's really inconvenient, but they'll go out of their way for you, that's a kind of light version. Or how about um, you get sick and you get a very serious illness and they're the ones who keep coming. They're the ones who visit you. They're the ones that will uh, cook for you. They were the ones who will clean your house when you're in the hospital. They're the ones that will watch your kids. Um, they will be there for you when you need. And if there was ever a friend, when you think about this, um, here is a friend. And what you're doing, so for those of you who have been married, there's, the vows typically go something like this, right? We've, we've all heard this. You've gone to weddings. You vow for better or for worse, <laughs> for sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, Till you die, <laughs> till you're dead, till one of you is dead, I will be there. <laughs> what is that? That isn't just saying, I will be, that's constancy, but you're vowing constancy. <laughs> um, you have friends in your life, and maybe they'll do this for you for a season. They'll just do this for you for several years. And if a person will really be there for you, you get cancer. That's a person, that's a friend. That is a friend. You lose your job, and you get in very serious trouble financially, and they'll say, you know what, if you lose your house, you can come to my house. That's a friend. But to say that you will do this, and you will stand up before God and neighbors and before our government, and you will vow and seal it in a covenant, and a covenant, I told you, is not just a contract that we make with the government and that you make with this other person, but you are sealing under God. And that the important part of the covenant is that if you break covenant, you, will, you are saying, God, you can curse us. Covenant incurs curse. We all want the blessing, but we don't want the curse part. And this is part of the reason why people don't understand that if you start to break your marital vows, why it will not only ruin your spouse, it'll ruin you. It will you 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 can because we don't realize that we've incurred curse. But this, you know, you have friends and they do this for you, but you don't know that if they'll keep doing this for you, right? But here is this person. When you get married, they stood up and they vowed this vow, constancy. That's the first one. They'll be there for you, especially in need. Um, second one, Keller likes to say that a second quality of friend is transparency, and that's the word he uses, but I, I think what I like to emphasize vulnerability. <laughs> what is transparency? The Bible says that the first husband and wife, that they were naked, <laughs> and yet they were unashamed. And isn't this the thing that we all long for that we go through life and we feel alone and that people don't really quite get us, really quite understand us. And so when you meet a friend, what you start to do is you start to take off layers. <laughs> I mean, uh, and you start to let yourself be known, and especially not even just your, the good parts, the things you like, or your hopes, or your dreams, but you also share fears. <laughs> 
You share shame. You share things that you're not sure if a person were really to understand, would they, would they embrace you? And if you, if you can open those things up to a friend, and then they would say, you know what? That doesn't scare me. I'll, I'll be there with you. That's a real friend, isn't it not? And, um, and, you know, I think this is the kind of thing where women understand this better than, than men. <laughs> we tend to see this, you know, like uh, the guys get together, and if we just go, go out like, hey, let's go to a ball game together. And, you know, we watch, we watch ESPN together, and then we like sports together, and then we feel like that's, a, that's my friend. But actually, the women understand that you have to start to self-reveal and they start to give their, their hearts to each other and include other women into places that, that are, are harder and are vulnerable. But this is the, is the most intense friendship because the more we begin to do this, we know this is scary. <laughs> we know that as you start to reveal, it says they were naked, but we're not just talking about physical nakedness. That as you start to like reveal who you are and let people into your, into your vulnerable places, after they get to know you, they're, they're getting into an intimate place in your life. If they know you there, and then later on they decide, well, I'm just going to leave now. <laughs> How would you feel? You ever done that? In our culture, people think we're, we're seeking after romance. But then as they begin to do romance, they start to reveal, and they don't understand they're starting to do this deep form of friendship. But as they start to do this across the sexes, some, a deep form of intimacy begins to take place. And this is how a lot of uh, you probably became attracted to your spouse or to some girl or, or boyfriend. At some point, you got to know them, and then they revealed who they are into their vulnerability, and then you, 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 you like them within their vulnerability. And then that, they were like, oh, you really, really, really like me. And then that began to even more... Um, you know, launch into a deeper. But once you get into that place, it's a scary place. If you have uh, singles, if you have a, a friend, you just think, this person is just a friend, but you're already getting to that place. Let me tell you something. You're, is you're starting to get into that dangerous place. You're already starting to date this person. Hmm. You're moving towards something closer to marriage. But we know that if a person meets you in that place and then they leave you, how do you feel? And we've seen this, whether it's happened to you and you've happened to your friends, they, they just are dating somebody. Or, and, and they start dating that person for quite, and it starts getting quite serious. And they start to self-reveal and into those vulnerable places. And then at some point it ends, maybe a year or two or five. But then that person leaves, and it is devastating, is it not? Utterly devastating. Because when a person finally knows you there, and then they leave... The hurt is just, you feel like you're dying. <laughs> and so what was marriage intended to do? Marriage was intended to first offer you the constancy. <laughs> A person says, I will never leave. I will be there for you. And then, there within that place, you can begin to do this transparency <laughs> and open this up. This is what happens in the most healthiest of friendships. But in this, the most intense friendship there is. To offer you this deep, profound safety through the covenant, that most ultimate commitment through the covenant, it offers you that safety now that you can do the second important piece of friendship to be known. To be known. 
Now, if that's all friendship was, um, that wouldn't be friendship. That seems actually more like lovers, right? But there's actually a third piece which makes it friendship. And here for this, I'd like to quote um, Lewis. Actually, it's a, it's, I know this passage too, and, um, but uh, Keller's so wise, he, he, he uh, lifted it straight off. This is from a very wise Christian thinker, C.S. Lewis. You guys know these are like the guys I love. I love Lewis. I love uh, Keller. Every now and then I, I draw into John Calvin or Augustine and some of my other favorite uh, thinkers. But um, this is Lewis from his book, Four Loves, where he talks about friendship. And so here's how he puts it. Friendship arises when two or sometimes more discover that they have in common some insight or interest. Do you see the same truth? Do you care about the same things, the same beauty that I see? The man who agrees with us that some question, even though it's little regarded by others, is of great importance, that person could be our friend. Hmm? This is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any friends. Are you like that? I'm a lonely person, so I just want some friends. But you can't only just want friends you got to have something else that you're interested in, you love, and you see. And then with that person, you can become a friend. So here's how he puts it. Um, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. <laughs> Where the truthful answer to the question is this. Do you see the same truth? But the person really thinks their answer would be, eh, I don't really care about that truth that you think is so important. I just want you to be my friend. Where that's the case, no friendship can arise, according to Lewis. Friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or, or white mice. <laughs> I have no idea why someone would care about white mice, right? Or about pets. or I mean, there are, there are all kinds of things that you can build a friendship on. I like baseball, for instance. I have a really good friend, and it actually started with baseball, right? Um, although th that's not a small thing, people. Baseball is a big thing, okay? It's a glorious thing, <laughs> all right? And if you don't know, well, you just don't know, and you, you just can't be a close friend to me on, at that level, okay? Um, but apparently, according to Lewis, you can like dominoes, and you can at least start a friendship. But those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. That's friendship. You have to go someplace together. There must be a road that we go together. And then this person is a fellow traveler, and we're on this pathway together. We know there's this, this beautiful thing, this road that we're going together. That's part of the friendship. And in... Um, and you know, a lot of non-Christians today, people who don't believe in the gospel, you know, they can have good marriages. They can do the constancy. They can do the vulnerability. And sometimes they can do it better than Christians. But um, here's this third thing. This third thing is where the potential in a marriage in Christ is just, just astronomical, quite frankly. Because it's one thing to share baseball or like, you know, the typical so many other, um, you know, non-Christian marriages. Here, here's, here's the path we're on. We both think our kids are just wonderful. And since my, our son is really good at baseball, here is the pathway that we're on. I like you because you, you were just the, 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 the hottest babe I could get. And you like me because you thought, I, you know, I had a decently good job and, you know, I was just the right type. All right? And then 
here is the road that we're on together, and that is we're going to make our kids perfect. <laughs> so here's our son, and he just has a rocket arm, and when he makes it to the major leagues, you know, this, this is our project, and I, I've met couples like this. This is what they do. When the husband's not at work, he's out throwing ball with his, with his son. And when the wife is not at work, the, the husband and the wife are just going on travel teams all the time, getting their son to become, you know, to tomorrow's, uh, uh, tomorrow's uh, super pitcher or MVP. And, but what happens after it happens? Or the other project is we're going to be good looking and we're going to be rich and successful and we're going to have the great house and the perfect kids. And then what happens after you get the house and after you have the kids? And you can build a marriage on that, but what, ha what happens after the kids are gone? <laughs> what happens after you've maxed your career and then is, th is that it? Your wife was there for you. You hit your career. Or maybe you were there for her. Nowadays, come on, let's, let's, we're all equal opportunity. She's going to hit the seat, become sequel, CEO, and then you guys are going to be rich and famous. And then what happens after that? Is that it? You're, you've kind of hit the end of your road. But here, what is, this, what is this fellow traveling road that you can have in Christ? And here, I, I would say this is in, in, in a Christian marriage, you actually have something like a missional friendship. What's that mission? Number one, you're on a road to the very glory of God himself, to the kingship of Christ. He, his full reign and his full glory poured out in you and in your wife and all the different people and in the places in the world you are intended to sow into. That is what you walk that path together. And if, that's, if that's, that's a lifelong, incredible path, I know couples who would say, today in this neighborhood, you know what we're going to do? We're, we are going to bless every kid in this neighborhood. Isn't just, we didn't just come here to, because we want the best house, but we want to bless all our neighbors, and we are going to be the ones that we see the poverty in this neighborhood. We're going to, be, we're going to do that for Jesus. Not just for our own kids, but for Jesus. Some couples say that after I, uh, they think, you know what, after our kids grow to a certain age, you know, we're, we're going to start thinking about how we're going to reshape our life. These are incredible ways of thinking about friendship. But let me give you one more before I, I, I shift gears into the next portion of my message. There's another, there's another uh, glory that a Christian marriage sees and they share in their friendship. Do you know that the very purpose that God put us on this earth. It says in Genesis that human beings were made in His image. We were made to reflect God Himself. And the, do you know that there's this beautiful thing that, and it's only in Christianity, that God is three in one. That only in Christianity that we have three persons, but there's one God, and there's a communion of love so profound that they do not lose their individuality, and yet there is this profound unity. And you know that marriage is supposed to reflect that too? That in your marriage, there are three persons? And this is why so many non-Christian marriages grind up against each other. There's only two. There's me and there's you. You do the best you can. I do the best you can. And at some point, they just grind up against each other. But in a Christian marriage, there's three. There's the husband and there's the wife. And there's God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. And in your marriage is a little small picture of the most profound love relationship 
that, that reflects something like the Holy Trinity. Let me give, this, let me give you a passage. Here's what it says. You're like, really? Is, it, is, is really God in this? This is the way God intended it. This is from Malachi chapter 2. And if any of you have been doing um, devotions with us, we, you know, we, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. This is what he says. And this is actually a passage where God is quite angry because people are poisoning and then there's like men who are just divorcing their wives and just throwing their wives away. And he's really quite angry that they're unfaithful to their wives. But this is what he says. Did he, that is God, this is Malachi 2 verse 15, did God not make them, husband and wife, one? With a portion of his spirit in their union. Isn't that the way God did to his people? He made the husband and wife one, and then he put his spirit in their union. This is the other portion, this profound covenantal friendship to reflect the beauty of God into the world. Okay? That's on spiritual friends. Let's move to part two. Part two of my message is life-giving. What are we here to do? And um, there are three pictures of life-giving that I'd like to just give, but we're only going to cover two of them. The third one is too big. And we're going to have to hit that in another message. And the first one I want to talk about is love is life. That's what I want to talk about. Love is life. What gives life? Now, I actually didn't, um, I didn't get this from Tim Keller, and I didn't get this from, so I'm going to embarrass him. I got this from Andy Yang, one of our brothers. <laughs> um, it, for those of you who don't know, in, in our, um, we're going through a men's ministry training lately, and what we're doing is we're spurring each other on to deepen our prayer and devotional lives, and we get together for an accountability. And, our, and my brother Andy, a couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 John chapter 3. And here's how it says. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, Whoever does not love, and get this, abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, we tend to think of love as primarily a feeling, but that's not what it is. And then Andy said that he, he, he really chewed on that passage, and it reminded him that God is a God of life. And it says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the, what he says, do you guys know? And the life. I'm life. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm the life. I'm life. And in 1 John, it says that God is love. It doesn't just say that God is loving. It says that God is love. And, and our brother Andy, he says he reflected on those two. And he says that God is life. God is love. And apart from love, you abide in death. What are we here to do when you're married to somebody? We all know that you're supposed to love this person, but I want to I emphasize. I said this before, but it's really important to emphasize this. We tend to think today is love is a feeling. I have this feeling. I have these great feelings with this person. That's why we got married, <laughs> right? And so, you know, you know as long as I'm, we're feeling it, we'll stay together. But in the Bible, love isn't primarily a feeling. Love is an action. Love is an action that says what you need, what will bless you, what will cause you to thrive and grow, that I will do. That thing, that, that action, that's what I will do. And, and today in our culture, this is the way we tend to think about it. Um, I said to you that a marriage is a covenant, but we, we mainly tend to think of it as a contract. And here's the contract. I will do X, Y, Z. I will bring these things. I will bring my looks. <laughs> I will bring my money. 
and I will bring my charm, and you, you, you bring your looks, and you bring the sex, and you bring the food, and, and that's the deal. If you do those parts, I'll do my part, and then this is what happens. After a certain while, you stop feeling like giving these things, and then because you stop feeling, you start giving them in a lazy way, or you just stop forgiving them. And then she goes, hey, you're breaking the deal. <laughs> you're breaking the deal. And then over time, you've promised her you're going to do this thing, so you just go, uh. and But you feel resentment because the other person is both of you. This was my job. This is your job. We're supposed to get together, and you're just not doing it very well anymore. <laughs> so then you know what starts to happen? A coldness starts to grow over the marriage. And we think you start losing your feeling of love for your husband or for your wife. And then this is what starts to happen. You're like, you know what? You know, I'm not doing that as well as I used to. And you're not, you know, doing your thing as well as you used to. So you just stay in your corner and I'll stay in my corner. And, and if I watch a lot of ESPN, you don't bother me about that, okay? Um, and I won't bother you about the fact that, you know, our sex life isn't very good anymore. And so... I'll just bring home the money, and you just, just whatever. You take care of this and that, and then we'll just make it work. But every now and then, if you bring it up, the bell will ring, and then we'll come out, <laughs> and we'll fight. You stay, but you, if you stay in your corner, and I stay in my corner, it'll be okay. And what will happen is a, the marriage starts getting into like a coldness. Because the feelings... <laughs> the feelings seem to be waning because, because what we have is we're always expecting the other person to do their part of the contract of the deal. But here is the way love is intended to be really life-giving. You already know this, actually. Um, Keller likes to point this out. You have a child, and this child gives you nothing. <laughs> what do they give you? They give you their poo. They give you their pee. They give you their crying and their whiny and their selfishness. And then they grow older and they become teenagers. And then they just give it to you a lot more in an even more annoying fashion. Then they crash the car. <laughs> they give you grunts at the dinner table. Where's my clothes? And to this really annoying, selfish person called your son or your daughter, here's what you do. You do the acts of love. You give, you serve, you bless, you think about their well-being. You do the acts of love and the acts of love and the acts of love. And then what starts to happen? Then you have these feelings. <laughs> Occasionally, they even thank you. <laughs> Every now and then, your child thanks you. Every now and then, your child says they love you, and you're like, and, and every now and then, they're happy because you did stuff for them, and it just fills your heart. So on the pattern of your children, you know how you're acting? You're acting according to biblical covenantal love. You're doing the actions of love, which is life-giving to your children. And then because you do the actions of love, what happens? The feelings of love grow and grow and grow, and it grows so big at some point, if your child acts like a complete jerk and, is, and is really has no, social, you know, has, no social, has no social graces and nobody else likes your child, <laughs> but you still will die for your child. <laughs> because in your child, you've been operating according to covenantal life-giving. <laughs> 
You've been doing love as action, and now it's just growing the feelings until now you, you can't even give them up even if you tried. But with your spouse, you've been doing a deal. And if your marriage is at that place where you're at the deal, and you, you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that boxing ring, if your marriage is something more like a cold boxing ring, you stay in your corner, and, and hopefully we will only fight every now and then. The bell only rings occasionally. <laughs> you're in trouble, and you're afraid the bell rings. Oh, I better stay in this corner, so if I do this thing, the bell will ring, and she will come out. <laughs> All right? She's going to come out, and we're like, oh, gosh, now I've got to come out. <laughs> You know, if you're there, it's because you stopped doing the life-giving, the life-giving thing of loving as action. If the bell rings and your husband comes out to fight, put away the boxing gloves, put away the contract, and do what you do for your kids. He doesn't deserve it. But today, I'll bless you. I'll forgive you. That's life-giving. Now let me talk about a second way. And this one's a little tougher, and I'm going to wade into some controversial territory. Let me ask you this. Um, there is an environment in which people flourish the most. And what is that environment? So you guys know what it is for a fish, right? What's a fish? It's the water. If the water, if you got water, the fish is just, poof, just, just goes, you know, it's just, vroom, the, the, the tail goes, vroom, you know, you, you know, it's like you go to the, the fish tank and you tap the fish tank and the fish gets scared and, poof, but it's just like in a lick, it's just on the other end of, of the fish tank because that's the environment in which they were meant to thrive. But as soon as the fish flops outside the water, what happens? They, like, they just, <coughs> they start dying. That environment, the matrix, you guys all seen that movie, The Matrix, right? The matrix in which we were is love. What is the other life-giving that one flesh is intended by God? And that is its kids. <laughs> now let me say something that's maybe controversial. It was designed by God that one flesh produces more one of your one flesh called babies. <laughs> um, and, and uh, I'm just going to say this directly. There are people today, and they get married. Um, and they get married, and they decide, you know, I like her, and she likes me, and we like having fun together. We like going on these fantastic vacations. And kids are expensive. <laughs> and I don't want to change diapers. So I don't like kids. I don't want to be around kids. We're not going to have any kids. And so your marriage, people get into marriage today, and their, and their sole purpose of marriage is just to have somebody to have with and hang out with, and that's it. It's really largely a selfish marriage. If that's the only reason why you don't want to have kids, I would say you're sinning against God. Right at the very beginning, God made marriage, and then you know what he also said? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. He doesn't want kids. He wants a lot of kids. He likes kids. And let me, what does one flesh do? Think about this. There's something inside of you, and you know there's wonderful things inside. Hopefully you know there's wonderful things inside of you. Your mind, your gift, but not just your mind, your, your inheritances. There's a little piece of your grandfather in you. There's a little piece of beauty of your aunt inside of you, and you don't even know it yet. But do you know that there's a wonderful piece of your aunt inside of you? But once you go into one flesh with someone else, 
guess what? You're going to have a kid, and all of a sudden, that artistic gift that you never thought you had, any inside of you, it's inside of you. <laughs> that artistic gift that's inside your aunt, all of a sudden, you have a son, and that son just, there's just these paintings. You're like, where did this come from? It's in the one flesh in you. And it doesn't come out. It doesn't become unleashed yet until you get married. And literally, you want to know what your one flesh could look like? Look at your kids. Your kids are your one flesh. They're walking around. They're the walking, talking one flesh of you. <laughs> you and your wife, that's what they are. <laughs> and that's why we, and we all know that it's beautiful. We see the kids, the little baby, sometimes they're a little older, and, they look, and then they, we look, look, say, hey, hey, he looks like you. He looks like, you know, he looked like mom. And then you wait a little bit older and you realize he looks like mom, but he has the temperament of dad. She looks like dad, all right, but she has the same gifts as mom. Or even more interesting, as grandmother or as uncles. And all of that is coming out, and God has put just an unbelievable amount of glory inside of you. But when does it get unleashed? It gets unleashed when you have... In fact, God wants more than one. He would like two or three. Now, let me say a few points of controversy here. I know that some of you, you may be afraid to have children. Or some of you, maybe you, it's a really, I know there's a really painful thing. You may not have been able to conceive and have children. But God has a way of bringing life. And maybe not children, but this is life-giving. But let me say this to you. If you, for, this isn't just about the number of kids you have or whether you have kids. It's, it's about how you envision marriage itself. Is this of God and of his beauty and of his wisdom and of his glory? Is that what you want to see unleashed inside your marriage? Because that's what marriage is. It's a one flesh union to unleash the spirit's glory. That's what it's for. And so if some of you are like, I don't want to have kids, you're impeding that glory. You're saying marriage is just going to be about us. But some of you, maybe you choose not to have kids or you're only going to have a certain number of kids because you have something else you have a calling to do from the Lord. That's, now that's for the Lord. There's places in the Bible. There's no place in the Bible that says you've got to have three kids or five kids or ten kids. But this is the general desire of God that this is this way. And God gives us certain freedom, but it's not a freedom just to live life according to me and my own selfish prerogatives. So some people just say, okay, you know what? i got to get my parents off my back. And, you know, I don't really want kids, but my wife really wants kids, so, you know, we're just going to just have one. And so if you do that, let me, let me just let me say something to you. If you have one child, let me at least urge you to consider a second. Why? Not only are you considering your marriage not in light of God's wisdom, but after you grow older, um, you know you're a lot older than your children, and you're probably going to pass away before your children. If you only had one, who will they have after you're gone? Hmm? Who will they have to walk with them, has really known them, and has loved them and will be there for them after you're gone? Or how about this? Let's say you have one child. They grow up. They're married. Then they have children, and let's say they, you, you get two grandchildren. If you only had one child, then didn't you also not steal away their potential aunts and uncles and cousins 
and all of the other beautiful things that could come through your one flesh. So I want to urge you, not by guilt, but because you would seek the deepest beauty of God. Consider this, please. Consider this. And I know there's a lot of fears, especially San Jose. It's crazy expensive here. It's unbelievably expensive here. But God always provides. Don't think about it as money or as a pragmatic choice. And, um, and I want to say one more thing about this. The matrix is love. And some of the most incredible life-giving is the kids themselves. What will be life-giving to the kids if you give the matrix of love to your children? This goes back to last week's message. We think if we get together and we're going to make the kids the center of our marriage, don't make the kids the center of your marriage. Oh, we're going to get together and your career is going to be the center of our marriage. Don't make that the center of your marriage. If you do, then you're stealing from your children. What is the fish tank, the matrix that will help your children thrive if they watch you do constancy to your wife? If they watch your wife do vulnerability to the husband, they watch mom do vulnerability, if they watch mom and dad do missional, covenantal beauty of God, walk that path toward the glory of God together, when they watch that with constancy and vulnerability and with the glory of God all together, then they will have tasted all their life, their, your marriage becomes the matrix. They'll, all their life they'll see love is possible. Love is powerful. Love is action. Love is covenantal. It's doable, and you, there your kids will thrive. This is what makes human beings thrive. And so for so many of you, you know, of course we want the best for your kids. You know one of the best gifts you can give your kids? <laughs> give them this love-filled spiritual friendship. Make that a priority in your marriage, and do that, you'll unleash your children. Hmm. Let me close my message this way. Um, the, the best life-giving friend. Um, in the first, I, I shared with you last week, I showed you, with you a story that, um, I was, that one of the things that our marriage wasn't very good for the first seven years. We've been married now um, 18 plus. We're going on 19 years. And um, I would say since year seven, it's been good, better, better, and it's being more and more wonderful. I think our marriage is better now than it's ever been. Right? But it wasn't very good for those first seven years I share with you. And I share with you one of the reasons last week is because I made my work more important than my wife. Um, but I also want to share with you another story. Um, we went into marital counseling. <laughs> You know, she kept coming out of the other side of the ring. <laughs> so I had to keep coming out. And we're like, oh, this is bad. We, we need a referee <laughs> so that we could put away the boxing gloves. And that's what marital counseling is. Hopefully it's a wise person that will put, break down the, the boxing <laughs> gloves altogether and will take you into covenantal friendship. And our, uh, we went into marital counseling, and um, the guy's name was Bob. <laughs> okay. Um, Bob Dalberth, if, you're, if you ever listen to this message, Chris and I love you. You're awesome. And you helped save my life, my marriage. You helped our kids not live in death 
abide in death, but start to abide in the love of Christ because you helped us to repent. But here's what happened in the first session. We got together, and this is kind of what it's like. Your wife is over there in the other end of the, of the ring, and you're over here. You got the, in the middle is the contract, and she's not fulfilling the contract, right? Well, of course, you're not fulfilling your deal, but you think she's worse. <laughs> of course, he, the other person's always worse, right? And so um, I went into the marital counselor thinking this. All right, so I hope this guy knows what he's doing, and I hope he fixes her <laughs> because she has more problems than me, right? And, of course, I've got a few minor little things that just, you know, I'll just kind of touch up those things. But I hope he really fixes her. That's what I was thinking. And in the first session, he opened up his Bible, and this is what he said. Susan, the Holy Spirit is upon you, and he's changing you, and he's going to do good work in you. And the Holy Spirit is on grace, and he's at work in her, and he's changing her, and he's going to be in both of you, and, and then this marriage is going, it is God's will that this marriage sings. And I sat there going, and then whatever he said after that, I don't remember. Because then he kept saying more of the thing, and it just became blah, 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 blah. Because after he said that, I was sitting there going, wait a second. That's true, isn't it? So a couple things. Number one, is God's will that our marriage sing? My view was, it's my will that our marriage just muddle along. <laughs> if she just stays in her corner and I stay in her corner and she just stops complaining so much, then we can just get through this. That was my will. But he said, it's God's will that our marriage sing. And I said, we have no idea how to get there. But that's true. And I stopped believing it. And here's the other part. The Holy Spirit, of course I knew the Holy Spirit's working on me because you know, I'm a good Christian, right? <laughs> but I started thinking that if things were to be right, my wife had to be fixed. So I started thinking I had to fix her. So I would tell her things. I would tell her mean things. I would read books and study on how she needs to be fixed. And then I would try to like do stuff to her to try to like fix her, right? And, and then she would just get more and more angry. And, and then it, did, it didn't work. I wonder why it didn't work. And then Bob said, the Holy Spirit. I, I know that grace, and of all the human beings, grace is my very best friend. She's my favorite person. But I'd forgotten that there's an even better friend that grace has. And Jesus came, and he was utterly constant to her. And he knew every vulnerability of hers, even better than me. And he was absolutely on a mission to take her to the glory of God. And he would pour out his spirit, and the spirit would never leave her. And I hope, are you there? Would you believe that this is true? Not just for you, but for your spouse. Because you think, he's never going to change. He's never going to change. Let me tell you, the reason why he's never going to change is because you don't believe he's going to change. <laughs> And because you don't believe it, you're pushing God out. And in this marriage, you're keeping it a boxing ring. <laughs> but actually, what you believe is the most person, this is a three-person marriage. And there's a very, very best friend who will always be constant, who has utterly made himself vulnerable on the cross to bear up all our weaknesses and all our wickedness. 
And he absolutely will never stop till the both of you will change and your marriage will sing. Will you believe this? And I remember sitting there, and whatever Bob was saying, I was thinking, I stopped believing that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is changing my wife. And I had this epiphany. I realized I don't have to fix my wife. I just have to love my wife <laughs> the best I can, which isn't honestly very good. But if I finally just let it go and stop trying to control her or shape her or just have to have it and trust that Jesus is the biggest, most powerful friend in this marriage and he can change her and he can change me. That was the beginning. <laughs> I would say that moment is when our marriage really started. <laughs> and it can happen for you too. Believe Jesus is the very best friend. And under Jesus, you can just begin to be as good a friend as you can be under him. But trust that he will do it more and your marriage can sing. Let's pray. Father, we're living in such um, a deeply lost and broken time. I mean, I'm not even just talking about, of course, the, the, the people who don't know the Bible and they're doing marriage, of course, they're, they're in the boxing fight and boy, are they slinging it, slugging it out until they hurt each other so much they have to flee the ring. <laughs> but Lord, that's happening in so many marriages among Christians inside the church. And there's so many wonderful fundamental pieces of wisdom, and we don't even know what we don't know. We're blind to things we don't know, and we're hurting each other so much. And I pray that you would use these words, these messages, this my foolish lips, and you would take us to this most beautiful person, Jesus, who puts the Holy Spirit, his spirit, into our marriage, and he will never leave, and calls us to this most deep, and most unbelievable, intense friendship. One that is constant for life, but it needs to be life-giving if it's going to make it and thrive, not only for us, but for our children. And I pray, Lord, that this week, that the marriages in our church, they would, have, they would not be afraid to have strong and important, if they, and if they think, I don't, can't have this conversation with my wife, then would they have the courage to say, you know, let's go get a third person to help us. Let's go get some marriage counseling. I pray they would not be afraid to do that. And I pray that all the marriages, they would begin to open up to each other, the couples and to one another, and we would begin to share how the deep wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit can be unleashed. And for our singles, I pray that, you know, those who, who are pursuing romance and boyfriend and girlfriend, they can learn before I use her as my romantic this person that I'm just so hungry for romantic love, how about first if I learn friendship? I pray they would pick up this deep and incredible wisdom. And most of all, Lord, we pray that we would always fix our eyes on Jesus, the very best friend, the life-giving friend, the one who defeats death itself by the power of his life-giving love. We pray that we would trust that you are with us. You would never leave us. And the most broken marriages can be redeemed and resurrected 
by your friendship. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.